Hi, I'm Timo Glock and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 109 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. Every now and again, I like to bring on guests from outside the world of tennis, but who love playing tennis. This week, I speak to former F1 and current BMW Works DTM driver, Timo Glock. Timo is a super tennis fan. He is good game and he tells us when tennis started for him, similarities of tennis and racing, the huge costs which dwarf tennis costs to get to the top of the sport, fitness, concentration, driving on the edge, being competitive on and off the racetrack and much more. I love tennis and racing, so for me this was a mega episode with plenty of interesting bits. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsor Slinger. I'm getting eager to try out their new software, which is coming soon to go along with their portable ball machine. And if you missed last week's chat with their CEO, Mike Ballardi, add it to your playlist. It's a great listen. Okay, here we go. Hi, Timo. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Oh, very good. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Uh, really happy to be on your podcast. More happy for you to be on. You're not uh, every week we have tennis people on, but every now and again we get high performance athletes from other sports. So it's great to have a former F1 driver, current racing driver, TV commentator, business owner, and you're still a young lad. So amazing to to learn from you and get some insight into all that. But before we start, you're a big tennis fan. That's how obviously you're fan of functional tennis and I think we've communicated over a few years. You sent the odd video which we've liked and they've been great. So when did you start playing tennis? Uh, actually when I was a young kid. So um first of all I started with with dirt bikes, motocross when I was young, like five, six years old. And after two, three years, I had a crash and I broke my leg. And my mom just said, you know, that's game over for motorsports. And, and actually, I, that was the way how I came into tennis. So I, I played very intense uh, when I was young, a very intense tennis, tried to make a bit of a, yeah, having, having a go on tennis. But at some point, motorsport catched me back again. And, and I gave up on tennis again and, and concentrated more on motorsport when I was 14, 15 years again. Uh, were your parents in the motorsport world at all? Just my dad was when he was young. We just did it for hobby, uh, just for fun, because he never had the chance financially to do it. Uh, and he never got the support, let's say, from his family. And he was just doing it uh, on, on a weekend for with some, let's say, friends and, and uh, yeah, played a bit of a, or ha- had some fun with them. So he, ne- he never tried really to go into it. But he said when one of my kids has any talent in, in sport, he will try to, yeah, to, to help him, to help or to, let's say, yeah, help him out, yeah. So the, the motorsport bug at a young age was bigger than the, the tennis bug? Yeah, at that stage, yeah, I think my mom would have been more happy to that if I would have gone the the tennis route because it's less dangerous, let's say. But uh, yeah, motorsport catched me at that time uh, more, and I just uh, went that way. Yeah. And to get serious into is like thirteen, fourteen. Is that old for racing drivers? You know, to start their career, they talk about tennis players starting at five, six, seven, eight, and it's there's less of that start at thirteen or fourteen. They they really have no chance of making it. Yeah, that's actually uh, pretty similar in motorsport as well. I mean, there are a lot of young kids already, you know, starting go-karting like I did with motorbikes. They start the same age, like five, six, seven years. 
And um, it's not, let's say, the the normal way to start late like I did. But at the end, it still worked out. Maybe we saved some money. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, let's talk. This is something I want to talk about later in the episode, but let's just hit on it right now. Tennis people, parents, coaches, players, it's always that you know, not always, but some of them give that excuse. We didn't have enough money. X has more money. We don't have a team big enough. And it always comes down to money. But I've read all the books on some racing drivers, heard the stories. It all, a lot of it comes down to having money or getting big sponsors on board from an early age. But maybe tell us, like, what's it take for a junior racing driver to get up to the ranks financially nowadays? Um I think if I would have to start in, in these days now, I would not be able to make it. I mean, we were just on the limit when, when I started and we didn't drive the sort of the big championships because we couldn't afford it with the money because there were a lot. It, it took you a lot more money. You had to, to invest a lot more in, uh, let's say, new tires, new go-karts, new engines and stuff like this. So in my in my time go-karting, we, we managed to, to deal with 40, 50,000 euros. Then the next step, the next junior category was already around uh, 100, 200,000 euros. Formula 3, this is a, a big step, was around about 300,000 euros. And then you came into GP2 and this is about 1.5 million roughly to 2 million. Um, and then you step up to Formula 1. But depends on how many years you spend in every category. That's another point. It costs you more money. But in these days, it, I think it's double the price now. Uh, it's a lot, a lot more money involved. There are a lot a lot of junior drivers getting into drive academies from Red Bull, from Ferrari, even from Mercedes. So because otherwise you you you, you can't really make it. I mean, it's it's a lot of money which which you need in go karting. You spend already two hundred to three hundred thousand euros, I think, at the moment. Uh, the next categories, as I said, I mean, it's it's just double the price. Um, and trying to do Formula Two uh, is for sure. It's not double, but it's at least two to two and a half million at the moment. And that's that's crazy. And that money goes into running the team, traveling, paying for new tires, new engines, new parts. It's just you're paying to run the team, basically. You pay, yeah. You pay, uh, let's say, the team to cover the costs. What, as you said, like I mean, they don't need new engines, but it's it's just the the amount of work which which goes around it. You know, the people who are involved in a team, uh, they you know, they work permanently and. In a racing team for uh, for the junior categories, there are ten to 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 twelve people. I would say at the moment on a uh, in a team covering or even more. I think even maybe fifteen to fifteen. So covering you know the work on a weekend and uh, yeah, that's that's heavy uh, and hard to get sponsorships at these days. And you know there are not many there are not many places left in in Formula One or, or let's say there are not many places to to go or not not many seats available in Formula One. So, you know, uh, that's that's a hard fight. So, and intense. It's like trying to enter the big tree in tennis, trying to win a slam. Like, it's nearly harder than that. And so the goal is, would the goal be do really good at karting from a young age and then try and get an academy deal with Red Bull, Ferrari or Mercedes? Is that, would that be the goal? You mean for a young guy yeah. starting now? Yeah, I think that would be that would be the main goal at the moment. I mean, there is a lot of, due to COVID uh, in the past one and a half years, the simulator racing moved up massively, um, and and you know they trying to combine a bit the simulator stuff uh, with the real world, which is quite impressive at the moment. 
and and trying to get a route through, the, let's say, the, the, the simulator world to the real world. There are a couple of guys who stepped out of a simulator and were quite quick as well in a real race car. Is Lando Lando Norris, sorry, Tim, did he come from the simulator world? No, no, he, he he's a big fan of the simulator world, let's oh, say. Okay. There's a lot of, uh, in the winter, playing a lot of lot of games on the win- in the winter time, but he still came from go-karting, started in go-karts and, and made his way up. I wasn't sure. I was like, how did he, how is he so good, like... But surely the simulator world, there's there's no real consequences, is there? Yeah, this is the point. I mean, you know, you, you press escape and you start again. So, yeah. But this is, not, this is not the same like in the real world. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know you can learn the track and various things, but I don't know how you can actually replicate G-forces and smashing into a barrier or overtaking slipstreams and that stuff. So that's why I struggle. But I'm sure you can learn to operate the car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is there is a lot, a big help. First of all, learning the tracks because they are very similar to the reality because they get laser scanned and then you feel every bump, which is in in, in on the real track as well. And you say, as you say, you can you can still work a bit on driving lines and stuff like this and, and procedures in the car, which are quite similar in the simulator than to uh, uh, to the real car. So there are some. I mean, there are let's say step by step. There is more where you can learn from a simulator and, and try or work in the simulator. Like the Formula One teams, they have these big simulators. They are even, I mean, it's another step to compare what you can buy on the real market. And they spend a lot of time in simulators. They have their, let's say, reserve and test drivers. They spend the whole weekend in a simulator. When they, let's let's say they raced in Silverstone on the weekend and on a Friday and Saturday, there was a guy back in the, in the factory in the simulator driving, trying different setups. You know, if they have an advantage on or they, they saw an advantage on a certain setup, they send it to the track, they try it on the track. So there is a real to real, let's say, real time yeah. uh, benefit of, of simulators at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Plus you're getting miles, which yeah, is absolutely, yeah. for drivers. So I'm going to quickly touch on pressure. Or sorry, before I touch on pressure is similarities, tennis and driving. Is there any similarities at all? Or does tennis help driving at all? Concentration is the big point. I mean, being concentrated in a race for one and a half to two hours on a very high level. Um, let's say, you know, taking the example of racing in Monaco. I mean, for sure it's about fitness, but as well about staying mentally focused, concentrated. Um, and this is what I what I realize every time when I'm on a tennis court. As soon as you lose that concentration, you, you're doing things wrong. You're not playing the same way anymore, and uh, and that that's quite that I have to say is quite similar. I mean, I can play as good as I want on a, on a, let's say a practice moment, but as soon as it's called we call or it's called we're gonna play for points, mate, my game is totally done again. <laughs> so, but this is this is all uh, mentally, you know, which which switches on a, a let's say a button where they why I'm not hitting that ball anymore in a proper way. Tennis gives you the time between breaks to think about that, like to think of what you know, what you're doing wrong or why or what. But let's take Monaco, as you mentioned, that's what, two hours now. You're you're like in a, hotter than a sauna there, no errors. If you do a mistake, you're in the barrier. So you've no time to think about anything else. But is is that what it's like? That's actually what it's like and what, what, what we love about that sport and what is so hard and so demanding is being on point for two hours or one and a half, let's say it's two hours, not doing any mistakes. And, you know, we're talking about a tenth or two tenths difference in a lap over five kilometers, let's say. I mean, I'm sure Monaco is, is shorter, but 
And this is nothing. I mean, this two tenths is nothing. This is a reaction time of, of, of you or for of someone, you know? So, and to doing that in every corner and keeping the car, you know, it's not driving around being, being easy. And, and it's every time in every corner you're on the limit. And that's physically and mentally so, so demanding. And you try to find a way as well. Like in Monaco, you have moments where you can relax. And this is another point where you, in a race car where you start to adapt yourself, like you can, you can, let's say in Monza, they have long, long straights, three or four long straights where you can breathe and where you can sort of get yourself down a bit. In Monaco, you have a lot shorter time, but we manage even in the shorter time to get yourself down a bit, you know? So it's quite interesting how quickly you can adapt in sort of getting yourself down, getting yourself a bit of a, a rest, let's say, still being flat out. <laughs> wow, that's great. What's the average heart rate for a race like Monaco? That's quite different to from driver to driver. There are guys out there who stay quite low between 150 and 160. And then there are guys where you are above 180 all the way through. And of course, there are a lot of different moments when you when you when you drive on your own, it's easy. As soon as the pressure comes up, as soon as there is someone behind you, mate, you get a heart heart rate for sure, 10 to 20 heart rates or beats higher than before. Just being uh, under pressure. And from motorsport, is that the, the race in which you get, you need the highest fitness levels, you get the highest heart rate F1, or I know you're racing it a lot in DTM now. How does that compare? Definitely Formula One is 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 sort of the, the high point, let's say, on that, um, because it's just, yeah, physically that demanding that you're, you're already, your heart rate is because of the the chief force you have, you know, it, it's just uh, another level. That's definitely top of our sport at the moment. The cars are insane quick. When, every time when I'm on a, on a, at a Formula One race and I'm doing the commentating for, for Sky and I have the chance on a Friday to go on, on the track and, and watch those cars right at the track, it's impressive how quick they are. And um, DTM is, is less demanding in terms of physically, but as well mentally very high because you are not allowed to do any mistakes. You know, there are, it's the same like in F1. There, there are, I mean, in Formula 1, let's say you have Red Bull and, and Mercedes at the moment, and there is another pack coming with McLaren and Ferrari. In DTM, it's like 20 cars in one second. So there is no, no place for any error, error or for any little mistakes. So um, that's mentally as well quite, quite uh, strong, yeah. And tell me, on a Sunday night after a Grand Prix, are you just ready for bed or are you a guy for the champagne? Depends on the result. <laughs> <laughs> now there are there for sure there are occasions where you have the time let's say to to have a, a bit of a party on Sunday night but I mean for me most of the time I just went back to the hotel tried to recover tried to uh, calm down a bit and um, uh, relax yeah and getting back to your first race you came seventh or fifth seventh seventh what was it like for your first you know show up first Grand Prix race get a result of seventh Obviously, you were extremely happy, but did it set some really high standards for you and expectations that put a bit of pressure on you? No, not not at all, because it was a bit of a, a let's say, a surprise. In that year, in 2004, I was a reserve driver. So they had like Nick Heidfeld uh, and Giorgio Pantano. And Giorgio Pantano had like, uh, let's say, a financial sponsor getting him into Formula One. And uh, at some point, they either run out of money or they had a bit of a dispute with with the with the team. And I just got the call uh, on Sunday morning that I I gonna drive the race. 
So <laughs> that was quite a, a special moment. And uh, actually, at, at the end, I mean, I, I finished P11, but there were four cars disqualified and I got up to P7, which was a bit of luck. But at the end, no one asked about, uh, anymore about it. So I uh, scored two points in my first race. So I uh, was very happy about it. But after that, I, I was not driving the, the following races. I was just driving the last three uh, again in 2004, but there was no extra pressure from that. I was just super happy to have the chance to to do the race and at the end, you know, scoring points. Nice. And what's the one race you tell your children about? Uh, actually, I mean, Formula One, there would be 2009 uh, Singapore. But uh, to me, the best race I ever did was with Gary Paffett in DTM in 2018 in Hockenheim, where we had, and, and that's actually good to watch for you as well. Yeah, uh, I will. It's good fun to watch. The last 20 minutes of that race in Hockenheim, there was like a 20 minute fight between me and Gary. And it was every lap we were fighting for the lead. So it was about the lead and we were overtaking each other all the time. Uh, and that was one of the, the best races ever, I think. And i um, really happy to and, you know, sometimes you have, in, in racing, you have fights like this, but for P5 or P6 and no one really sees it. And this was for the lead. And when you win that, when I won that race, this was, I, I don't, I mean, still getting goosebumps from it. Uh, it was just really, really cool and, and good to watch. Good show for the fans. Great entertainment for our sport, I think. And uh, that was for sure the best race. 2018, Hockenheim race two. I'll, I'll, I'll YouTube that. But I think that's what the Netflix series, the F1 Netflix series has done for F1. You get no more about the, the younger drivers, the the guy's not at the top of the grid and you see the jewels that are going on and now I'd fallen out of love with Formula 1 for a few years but after watching that you're back in it and you're watching all the jewels and you're like it's, it's really interesting so I think they've done a good job and there's all, seen all the battles going on Yeah absolutely I mean it's good you know that you get a bit of an inside what's going on behind the scenes behind behind the, the doors let's say the closed doors and that's that's good to see uh, good to listen I mean I'm watching it as well it's it's good fun to watch uh, some some good let's say chats between teammates and, and team bosses when they you know starting to fight for I mean for me the best thing was uh, when they were when Red Bull was fighting with Renault again for, for Danny Ricciardo and uh, that was quite intense and quite nice to see what's really going on in the background I always hope Danny Ricciardo can just do a bit better you know he makes these moves and it's just not happening for him but hopefully it work out. Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. But any of these shows or any time I listen to their F1 podcast, the drivers always talk about their competitive nature on and off the track. First question for you is, who was the most competitive person you raced on the track and then off the track? Ooh, that's a good one. I think Sebastian Vettel and uh, uh, Michael, Michael Schumacher, who was super intense uh, on and off track. I think Michael, Michael stands, out that, stands out there as well. I mean, it, in these days when we, we, we were cycling a lot together and, and uh, doing a lot of different workouts together even playing chess was a massive battle <laughs> and uh, I really enjoyed that but he was super competitive everywhere it didn't matter you know we walking out it felt like walking out of the hotel there was a sprint to the rental car who's first at the rental car let's say 
<laughs> stuff like this. I mean, he was super competitive. But Sebastian as well, Sebastian Vettel as well, uh, on a different way, but super competitive as well, trying, you know, being the best on and off track. Yeah, it was every time a bit of idea. I only heard, was it Leclerc talking about Vettel, how competitive he was on the track because now lately when he was last, when they were both at Ferrari, that he would, Vettel would let uh, Leclerc win just to keep him happy. Like, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, look, it's the competitive nature of these guys is just unreal. You, heard, you just see racing everywhere is must be crazy. But also you talk about the fitness there. Going back to your F1 days, what was the fit? What was the fitness like? What sort of training do you do to make sure you're fit for the long races? Oh, I must, it was very intense. I mean, a lot of workout had, had, was done in the background. You know, a lot of uh, running, cycling, stuff like this. Uh, and then for, for us, the most important thing is the neck and the, the upper back and, and lower back. Uh, so all the core stuff was very important, uh, trying to deal with those chief forces you have in a car, but as well to protect you from a, a incident like uh, or a crash like um, Max Verstappen had it now in uh, in Silverstone. I mean, he had an impact of 51 G, so 51 times his own, let's say, weight. And this you cannot absorb being not fit, you know, and and that's one part of it why why. We have to work out like uh, a lot, uh, even more in these days than it was in my days in F1. And that, you know, that's a that's a process. That's a long work, five days a week. Uh, so yeah, it's pre- pretty similar as well to tennis. What I see, I mean, every time when I when I watch those guys like uh, Dominic Team, just I think I just watched it this morning. So now he's playing le- left-handed again with or tried to start a left or whatever. I, I... He left-handed now because he's, he's still injured on the right. He's a stress fracture. Yeah. And uh, and the way how he worked out, I mean, I saw a lot of videos from him. It's impressive. But as well, we don't see much from Roger Federer. I would like to see a lot more from him or from Rafael Nadal. But uh, as well a bit from uh, uh, Novak. You can see Novak Djokovic, but... So many team is quite impressive how how he works out how intense it is and I mean if you see if you played on on court a tennis match you know how demanding it is there is a, as well a short break in between and sometimes the the length of a tennis match being four and a half to five hours is insane I mean this is where I'm impressed with like that the guys are keeping that let's say level that high over four to five hours mentally and as well like physically. Is impressive to see. Speaking of length, have you your Nurb? I'm sure you've raced hundreds of times at Nurburgring. And what are the long races like at the Nurburgring? And for those that don't know, the Nurburgring is like a it's like a, what a 16, 15, 16 kilometer road racetrack in Germany. Twenty even. Oh, 20, is it? Sorry, 20 kilometers. And it's it's crazy. I've actually done a few laps there. It was good fun, but probably at one percent of your speed. But what sort of what's it like racing doing the longer races there? Yeah, I mean, I never did a twenty-four hour race at the Nurburgring. I'm I'm doing the twenty-four hour race in uh, one and a half weeks now in Spa, Spa Francorchamps, which I did already before, and I did another uh, a long distance race uh, in Australia a couple of years ago. Uh, twenty-four hours Daytona, I did uh, beginning of this year. So it's quite it's quite a different approach from a racing driver point of view because you you never. You, you cannot do the 100, let's say 100 to 102% being on the limit all the time. And it's a, it's a longer, longer time in the car. I mean, sometimes you have stints over two hours, sometimes even more. And you have to deal with a lot of traffic through a lap. You know, there are different categories in, in so uh, there are quicker cars, slower cars. So you need to deal with, the, with that. You need to deal driving in the night. 
totally different way. The temperatures are changing all the time. So it's a lot cooler in the night than over the day. So you need to adapt to to the car in a different way because the car is changing through a whole 24-hour race. If it's colder, it's going to behave different than when it's hot. The tire is going to behave different. So you need to adapt every time, which is uh, interesting. And it's it's really demanding over a 24 hours because you never really, even if you are, let's say you have a three to four hour break, you never sleep because you're, you're every time you're, you're, you hear the cars, you're, you're at the track. So you never really can rest. And the last Let's say 10 hours are, are tough, are hard. Wow. Once I'll tell our listeners, I once did a 24-hour go-kart race in Wembley Stadium at the Race of Champions. Yeah. It was good fun, but I think we had nine, eight or nine drivers at the time, but I couldn't even sleep between the stints, but it was good fun. But what is about driving at nighttime where there's different, you say there's quicker cars, slower cars, but you're probably going 200 miles an hour with your headlamps on. What can you see? Like how that is extremely dangerous in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, for sure it's it's more dangerous than on, on the day, but the, the lights are very powerful on those cars now. But still, you have to deal with, uh, let's say, even, you know, when cars coming from behind quick with the lights on, you know, sometimes it's... Uh, you're, you're sort of blended a bit and, and you cannot really see everything proper. So it's a, to, and, and if, and on top, if, if it's gonna, gonna be wet in the night, you know, you never really see what's going on, on the track, where's the standing water and not. So there are a lot of things which makes it really hard to judge, uh, and where you need to stay focused all the time. You know, you cannot really rest because you need to see what's going on, where you need to look at your mirrors, you need to look to the front, you need to see what, where you are in terms of tires and track conditions. So in the, in the night, everything gets, gets even more intense and uh, more, you need to be more focused. Wow. And something I just thought of like tennis and racing have one, I think one giant similarity and that's dealing with losing, you know, every week, there's only, there's only be one winner, be it on a tennis, a tennis tournament or a race. And how do you deal with that disappointment nearly week in, week out? Yeah, I mean it's the same like on the tennis court. You know, you need to if you if you lose the match or if you lose the race or you didn't perform like you wanted, you you need to analyze why at some point, and then you need to take it out of your mind and focus on uh, on the next one and and don't look back. Uh, that's how how I try to do it. You know, take take the things or analyze what ha- what happened on the weekend. What can you do better for the next one? But then you need to get it out of your mind and 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 look forward. That's the only way I think to to do it. And how pissed are you really when the mechanics after letting you down, they didn't tighten the bolt? I know deep down it must hurt a little bit. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, that that happens, but that's, you know, that's the difference uh, in our sport. It, it's a team sport. As a tennis player, you you just blame yourself at the end if, if you didn't play well or you, you made, made mistakes. But on our side, you know, it's part of part of the of a team. Part of our result is that the crew, the whole team, works together in pit stops and stuff like this. And it can happen that a pit stop goes wrong or a mechanic does a little mistake. But you know, it's not it's it's not happening often. They are they are trained as well, really well, and they are so focused on a weekend that at the end it's a team sport, and you you know you deal with it. You you go to the guy and say, "Hey, mate, what happened? I mean, happened," and you, you, we we look forward and. Uh, don't look back. So that's uh, for sure one one big part in our sport. Yeah. Nice, Timo. Well, look, I thank you very much. Just a couple more questions and we'll get you back on the racetrack. You're right now, you're racing, you're commentating, you have your own clothing line, which you see the top there. It's very nice. 
how do you manage all that? It's a bit like tennis again, where there's a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to say this year is very intense uh, due to COVID. You know, the calendar even got changed around uh, uh, quite late in the season. So, uh, and, that, and now it's a very intense time ahead again. I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm having DTM race on this weekend. Following weekend is 24-hour race. Following weekend on that is another DTM race. Um, then there's one week break and another DTM race. So there's a lot going on. And I, I just, you know, try to focus it. I have a small team behind me uh, doing all the, the work in the background, uh, uh, organizing my flights or my travel stuff and so on. Actually, the the the, the, uh, the clothes, clothes the hoodies I have, um, this is just like a little, uh, little project I had with a very good friend. He told me that 10 years ago already. And then I... Uh, yeah, and then I uh, uh, never. I said no in my phone once. I said, "Ah, no, you know, this is. I don't need. I don't need that work on my list as well." So, uh, and then things came together a couple of uh, uh, years ago, and we tried that, and you know, having a couple of hoodies and a couple of t-shirts uh, for my fans, and and I have to say, I'm quite happy with it. Uh, things came together, and we just worked out. It doesn't take much energy for me, uh, not much work for me, but uh, I like it. It's good. It's good. It's good. And you're a works BMW driver. That's like royalty in Germany, even in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I have to say, I when I was a kid, I was watching DTM. When I was really young, I was, was watching DTM back home. And my dad was a big BMW fan, uh, still driving BMWs. And he had, the, he had this M3 E30 in that days when they were driving as well in DTM. <laughs> Since then, I'm a big BMW fan. And for me, there was the option to go to BMW when I, when I stopped Formula 1 joining BMW and DTM, that was uh, good fun. It was, it was great to be part of a brand like this with such a history and, you know, having the pleasure to drive great cars on the roads. I can imagine. Um, what is your daily, what's your daily driver and what's your Sunday drive? At the moment, I'm having an X5 and my Sunday drive is an, actually a BMW E30 from 1988, which I uh, bought uh, Roberto Ravaglia edition even. So he, he was champion, DTM champion, 1988, Roberto Ravaglia. And then they made this sort of special uh, Roberto Ravaglia DTM edition. And this is actually my Sunday drive. <laughs> Very nice. Oftentimes, because the Formula One drivers, they're the one you hear about most that their daily drive, they don't even have a car. You know, they're not really interested in, you know, the having a fancy car, maybe because they're never at home, but uh, they're just more interested in the racetrack. But no, Timo, thank you very much. One last thing. Are you playing much tennis at the moment with how busy you are? Unfortunately, I can't play a lot because the main problem is actually my back because I had a problem uh, on my disc. So actually, I'm doing the same like Dominic team at the moment. I started and I, sh I think I sent you that video or I yeah. linked you in that video where I started left-hand playing. So uh, I'm trying that at the moment, which is working quite good, I have to say. I, w I was impressed when I, when I did the, the first couple of, of hits on the left-hand side. I thought that must look ridiculous because it feels ridiculous, but the, it didn't look so bad. And I have to say, I'm hitting the balls quite okay on the forehand. The backhand is still a bit of work to do um but uh i try to do in to intense or to to play more again in the winter when i have more time because this is part actually for me of uh preparing my myself for um for racing for a year uh because it's it's not only endurance stuff it's a lot of sort of sprint stopping very quick reactions you need in these days so that's part of my 
definitely my plan in the winter again. You need to call Dominic team up and do a training block with him. He'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, it would be good. Timo, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate your time and it was great having you on and keep sending us those tennis videos in the winter and best of luck with the race and, and the commentating. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I will send you some videos for sure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode with Timo. It was super interesting and a huge thanks to Timo. Best of luck in your racing. As usual, I'll be back next week and until then, get on the court. Bye. Bye.